Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr. Sia Jackson. Each episode, we'll be bringing you the latest insights, news and discoveries from researchers and academics at the University of Glasgow's College of Arts. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I hope you are all well and whether you're a new listener or a returning one, it's great to have you here. I've got a really fun episode in store for you this week as I am joined by Dr. Tim Peacock who is co-director of the University of Glasgow's Games and Gaming Lab. Tim very kindly took time out of his day to come chat to me about just two of the many fantastic and varied games projects that he has led and worked on in his role as co-director of the lab. Now, these projects that we chat about are very different. We start by delving into the world of Minecraft before completely changing gear as we explore a more strategic game, I think is probably the best way of describing it. My own personal biases as a gamer aside, I very much wanted to play these games. I was very jealous of the playtesters, and I have no doubts that you will as well. So if by the end of this episode, like me, you feel inspired to get involved with the Games and Gaming Lab, all I can say is listen on as Tim will share more on how to do that. Now, I feel I'd be doing myself a bit of a disservice if I didn't at some point involve a gaming pun or reference of some kind. So I can only apologise as I say, let's press play, let's press start, and here's my conversation with Tim. I'm Dr Tim Peacock and uh, lecturer in History and War Studies in the School of Humanities and also co-director and founder of the Games and Gaming Lab at the University. What is the Games and Gaming Lab? What is it that you all do and who else is involved in that? The Games and Gaming Lab is a cross-disciplinary research lab based in the College of Arts, but with staff and student members across the four colleges, ranging from astrophysics to veterinary medicine. It has over 200 members at the moment, and that also includes members from other universities and from external organisations. First and foremost, Tim, I think one question we maybe want to get out of the way here at the top of the episode is perhaps one I'm sure some listeners are curious about, and that's just simply why games? Why the Games and Gaming Lab? And what is it about games that makes them worthy of attention in this way? So I suppose that's actually more than one question, but why games? Well, it's a really good question, and uh, games are incredibly important as a source of research and of learning. As, um, as Master Yoda uh, once put it, the greatest teacher failure is. And that's one of the things about games. When we imagine what might happen in the future, we play games. We think hypothetical uh, concepts and we then play these out as scenarios, whether this is businesses thinking about the future potential state of the market or of of challenges that they might be facing, whether it's governments who wargame possible scenarios over things like the pandemic or over possible conflicts in international relations, whether it's people individually playing games with themselves in thinking about their possible future careers or aspirations. What happens if I engage in 
this particular project or if I pursue this opportunity, in what way will that advance me to the next square on the board, philosophically and practically speaking? So in a sense, we all play games, even if we don't realize it, or we gamify elements of our lives. And the Games and Gaming Lab very much seeks both better to understand gaming as it currently is and the games that are out there and the gamifying of our lives. But it also seeks to further to develop and use games in research, in teaching and engagement from a variety of these different perspectives. And really to to support colleagues and students with engaging in projects that uh, creatively do that and to explore new ways of doing that. I like that. I like we all play games and I very much enjoy the inclusion of Yoda there. Are there any particular games that interest you as a researcher? Is there anything that in terms of genre that you particularly are drawn to? I find that my research in terms of gaming is underpinned by two threads that run right throughout my my different areas of research. One of them being how organizations learn or don't learn. And the other are the the varied impacts of new technologies on society, on politics, on military. And the sense when you um, if you ask me to describe my research, typically I will describe it to folks as working on nuclear history, spaceflight and space security, games and wargaming, politics, and anything else that's thrown my way. And initially, that sounds like a very disparate group of interests, but all of them are underpinned by these two threads. And uh, increasingly, I've been working both on projects that tackle each of these areas individually, but also ones that link them together, particularly through, for example, uh, nuclear uh, wargaming around potential environmental uh, consequences, for example, uh, as well as the uh, sort of um, nuclear and space uh, interactions uh, in this regard, or the political underpinnings. And um, I realized that uh, when talking about Master Yoda's quote and leaping into games, what I, uh, what I didn't mention was that the power of a game is that it allows you to fail and to fail repeatedly, but in a way that is potentially safer than if you engage in this uh, you know, you, you only you only get one shot at at certain uh, instance, but also to learn iteratively from that failure to improve yourself. What we find often with these games, whether we practice them ourselves, whether organizations or governments practice them, they will fail many times in these games and simulations, but will seek to learn from why they failed in order to improve. And that is a a powerful tool for learning and research, particularly in an era where failure is something that is wholly looked on as negative. Uh, And and in, in one sense, rightly, I mean, we don't want to fail, we want to succeed. But it is through games that we have the opportunity to fail, potentially safely, and to learn from that and to gain greater knowledge through that journey. You're going to tell us today about just two 
of the many projects that you've led and been involved in with the Games and Gaming Lab. And as a gamer, I am very excited to delve into these a little bit more because they both sound amazing. Let's start with the Minecraft Ellisland project. Do you want to tell us a bit about what that is? Minecraft Ellisland is a historical research-led recreation of Robert Burns' farm at Ellisland in the computer game Minecraft, which is uh, focused around constructing objects and locations through interlocking series of different blocks. And literally everything in this world is a block, is this cube. There are no other elements which are curves or other types of shapes. It has been compared in the past to Lego, although Lego bricks do actually have a lot more in the way of curved elements and minifigures and that. On the face of it, you would think that it would be very difficult to shape uh, objects. Uh, and yet through, through the creativity of players over a number of years now, Minecraft has seen the creation of entire worlds, vast in scale, and complex machines through the use of these, these brick elements. And some of them the, is remarkable, just the, the amount of work put in. And it's one of the reasons why Minecraft is, if not one of the most popular, then maybe even the most popular a computer game in recent years. I believe in January 2023, there were over 170 million active registered users around the world, which shows something of the, of the popularity of it. And I think that it's precisely because of its flexibility as a building tool, even using those single elements. As to how Minecraft Ellerslin came about, it started with an email that said, can you build a Minecraft version of Robert Burns's farm? Can you do it quickly? And uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but uh, I thought, that's a really good question. I genuinely don't know. I will go and find out. And before I knew it, I was leading a project, building a historical research-led version of Robert Burns's farm in Minecraft. Well, that's definitely a very different sort of email to find in your inbox first thing in the morning. Are there any other reasons why Minecraft was chosen specifically, you know, over other games where you can build and customise like The Sims or Animal Crossing? I think that the, the reason that they were interested in Minecraft was the popularity of it. They had seen, and they'd also seen some of the, the creations and that, and wondered if it would be possible to, to use it in this way. I know that there is increased interest in the development of cultural heritage within games or the translation of cultural heritage into game form, both as a tool for engagement and learning. Uh, that that is certainly one of the one of the things that I'm really interested in in terms of my research is the ways in which we do that. And so for the project itself, my work included drawing on this research that I've been doing into cultural heritage and gaming and new technologies, and working then well how do we how do we translate that? What kinds of considerations are there? And coordinating between those developing Minecraft Ellisland and Ellisland Farm themselves. Originally, the project was uh, funded by COVID recovery funding, and it was through a, a competition sponsored by the uh, South of Scotland Destination Alliance, who are responsible for promoting tourism in the South of Scotland area. They were working with uh, Ellisland Farm, uh, Ellisland Trust, and this is where this project was born. 
the government body, public body interface, who connect academia to to these these projects, to to businesses, or rather connect these businesses and charitable organizations to academia, they got in contact. They were the ones who sent the email and they made this connection. And that was where the the project began. They had heard about the Games and Gaming Lab and uh, my work. And that's where the conversation started uh, last year. And it led from there. In terms of developing Minecraft Ellisland and then thinking about how players would later access it, was subscription or device an issue at all? So, for example, MMORPGs like World of Warcraft you have to have a subscription for, or some games are maybe mobile only. Those who have purchased uh, Minecraft are able to view uh, Ellisland Farm for free. So we've set it up so that the uh, Ellisland Farm is freely available from the Explore Ellisland website. At the moment, it is the Java edition, so it's those who are running Minecraft on PC. But the student developers whom we've been working with have been updating and, and creating the mobile version of Ellisland Farm and also the education edition, because Minecraft have an education edition that are used for schools and other educational uh, institutions. And those should be going live at some stage in the uh, the coming weeks. It was always our aim from the beginning to make this freely available to the end user and for this to be something that would firstly promote Ellisland Farm and bring more people to the farm as visitors, as well as acting as a tool to engage young audiences who maybe have not engaged with Robert Burns before uh, to the same extent and would be finding finding him and finding his history through this uh, this experience. You mentioned working with students. Do you want to take us through the next steps? So what happened after you'd received that email and how did the University of Glasgow Minecraft Society come to be involved in this? Well, I think the first uh, the first thing for me to figure out was whether we had the capacity to be able to do this, particularly as this is not something that we've done before. Uh, so I contacted folks and uh, put out feelers to see uh, among our present members if there was anybody who had this experience and capacity. And often I found that the last few years in the lab, one of the increasingly significant parts of my work has been project assembly. So it's bringing together different people and trying to look at feasibility and capacity and working out how to set up these initiatives. And one of the contacts that I was given was to the university's Minecraft Society, whom I previously had not uh, engaged with. And so I uh, spoke with their president, Bailey. What happened thereafter were a series of conversations involving the university, myself, uh, the Minecraft Society, Ellesdom Trust, SSDA. Eventually that led to a negotiation of uh, an agreement and contract, and that then went forward. And the Minecraft Society themselves have about 90 to 100 members, which is obviously a very, very significant number of, of Minecraft builders. For this particular project, I believe it was a core team of about 10 to 15 who were working centrally with others being drawn in as appropriate for the development and testing. Some of them obviously have long-standing experience with Minecraft going back a number of years, uh, including Bailey himself, 
who was uh, the sort of initial point of contact uh, with the work. After that, it was a question of liaison and coordination between myself as principal investigator, Dr. Matthew Barr from Computing Science, my colleague and fellow co-director of the Games and Gaming Lab as co-investigator, the Ellisland Trust and the Minecraft Society working on this project. At different stages, we'd look at the work that they'd done and we would comment on this and we would also provide further input, further suggested changes. If there were any issues that needed to be resolved, we would work with them in that and also look at how to translate the historical material that was being given by Ellisland Trust into the game form itself. Okay, so on the one hand, you've got the Ellisland Trust and the material they're providing you. You're dealing with a location of historical and cultural significance. And on the other, you've got Minecraft and I suppose the different possibilities and limitations that the game has in terms of what players are able to do. Were there any elements that you could or perhaps couldn't include or even any decisions that you had to make in terms of what you were able to transform into the Minecraft setting? One of the initial challenges was the question of scale, because within Minecraft itself, you have a character who is a fixed uh, size. The blocks are also fixed sizes. If you do the outside of the farm, then do the inside, the inside is actually comparatively compacted. You can't then do the same degree of detail of smaller individual pieces in terms of furniture, for example, and the shapes of rooms. But conversely, if you made the outside much larger, then it would be almost like the, the borrowers. You would be as, as a small, tiny figure uh, walking through this world and you wouldn't be able fully to appreciate it to say nothing of the fact that it would have taken a lot longer to build. The way that the, that, that was solved was through spatial teleporting. So essentially, the outside and the inside are actually in two completely different locations on the map. And the moment you step into the door, you are transported to the interior, so teleported to a different part of the map, which is built to a different scale. And from there, when you, for example, look out of a window, you are not looking out at the outside that you've just been visiting. You're actually looking at a, a reconstruction of that part of the outside, potentially done to a greater detail. That's just one example of the kinds of creative solutions that were possible in order to try and recreate as far as possible the interior and exterior to a reasonable degree. Were there any other challenges in terms of working with Minecraft and realising the farm within the game? When we talked offline a few weeks ago, I think I remember you mentioning something about cows? Yes, yes. I think one of the, um, one of the things that is particularly important to us are the morality and ethics around gameplay, and that includes respectful representations of the of the past, while also making sure that there's safety of users in the present. And uh, sometimes video games by their nature will have features in them that will be allow players to engage in behaviors that may not be, um, may, may not necessarily be uh, preferred. Uh, 
one example of this is that in Minecraft, you are able, for example, that there are cows, that you can milk those cows. And that is something that we have in the game as part of one of the tasks in game. You can milk the cows on Robert Burns's farm. But there was also a point at which you could punch them. And this was not not a good thing. And I remember in one meeting saying to the developers, now we we need to make sure that we can't punch the cows on this virtual version of Robert Burns's farm. And as I recall, I was I was doing some marking later that day and I suddenly thought, yes, I did say that earlier. This is part of my job. Let's just roll with it. But uh, yeah, they, 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 were, they were able to get it so that the, that the cows are safe. And there were various other restrictions that we had to put in place so that folks couldn't just enter a mode where they could, for example, destroy elements of the map or fly outside the boundaries uh, and that. Given, given the nature of video game mechanics and, and coding, I suspect that inevitably some people will be able to find ways of exploiting that and to glitch inside a building or to get around these. But the team worked as hard as they could to really filter that and to make sure that the experience was one that was as safe as possible and respectful as possible, while still being true to capturing the essence of the historical period. Another big decision in that regard was that we wondered about hosting this as an online experience so that people could join collaboratively, so that people could go and explore Minecraft Ellisland together. But in the end, we decided against that. Partly, we we didn't know what the server capacities were going to be, and depending on how many people were online at any given point. But we also couldn't necessarily then control what uh, what content or what interactions people may be exposed to. So we felt it was safer to have this as a self-contained download. So when you download Minecraft Ellisland, you are exploring it. You're not online with other people in that world. That is just for you. We think that if there were collaborative elements, then it would be more, for example, if we had a school group exploring it together, which is something that I know that Ellisland Trust are interested in doing more of. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the tasks that you've included in Minecraft Ellisland. You mentioned milking the cows earlier. What else can players do? Was there any particular rationale behind the different tasks that were included? The um, inclusion of the tasks was almost a adding an element of gamification into exploring Ellisland Farm. It is one of the potential challenges with a map of this nature is creating it in a way that represents the history, but also encourages players to engage, to move to different places in the map, but without necessarily putting up a large sign that says, now go here. So we created the tasks both as a a sense of replicating some of the types of interactions that you might have seen on a farm at the time, be it milking the cows or collecting apples or in one case, going to find Robert Burns's son, who has wandered off to a, a sort of a different part of the of the map. And part of the reason we included that was to encourage players to go to that point and to sort of see the experience. And they can uh, they, they don't necessarily need to, but you're encouraging them to do so in a way that 
that is non-intrusive and also a way that is relatively relatively simple. These are not games that are designed to trick people or to have people have people failing them. They are very much tasks to complete that are helping them to take those steps while also immersing them in something of the historical experience. And we included different different text blocks with descriptions as well as text from some of Burns's works in the farm as well. One of the rewards, in effect, for completing the tasks is that you get an audio recording of one of Burns's works that is unique. It was created for Ellerslund Farm uh, by a vocalist uh, for them. So this is something from their collection. So we're actually featuring archival material inside this experience. That's part of rewarding those who who go and who do these tasks. This is a bit more of the, of the history but at the same time, making it so that this is still as far as possible accessible. It's not a high bar for people to meet in terms of these completing the tasks. I really like how you've got the idea of the reward, but it's another way of encountering Burns's work and material mm. from the Ellisland archives. I think that's fantastic. I think you've potentially touched on this in saying that you know you want to do things for perhaps larger school group. Are there any other plans for expansion or building upon the project or is this kind of complete now is it rounded off i think to some extent it's a case of seeing where this leads going forward i know that ellisland trust are planning expansion at the moment they're consulting on this in terms of their heritage center there and that minecraft ellisland is an element of that that has helped inform this work the project itself, we've also been uh, very encouragingly, we were shortlisted for the Scottish Games Awards Best Educational Programme. So one of three uh, across Scotland who were shortlisted for that. We were also shortlisted for the Innovation of the Year Award at the Scottish Knowledge Exchange Awards. And I had conversations afterwards with uh, representatives from industry and also from the public sector who indicated that they felt that the impact from this project was exceptional, given the resources invested, and that it was exactly the kind of creative response to the pandemic, but also to attracting more visitors to this type of heritage, and also finding new ways of engaging with audiences in different parts of the world, including those who can't necessarily visit uh, Ellisland Farm. I also know that Ellison Trust themselves have indicated that the, the international reach of Burns is something that contributes significantly to the Scottish economy and to Scottish cultural life. And that's only going to be a growth area in future. So I, I, I would suspect that, firstly, we will have an ongoing connection with Ellison Trust, and we would look to see what may be possible with this in the future, both with Minecraft Ellisland itself, and also if there are other organizations out there who are interested in tapping into our experience and our capacity to build up historical research-led Minecraft experiences. Are there any historical sites, sites of cultural heritage that you personally would like to perhaps see realized in Minecraft form? Ooh. That is a good question. That is a really good question. 
Hmm. I know that during the pandemic, there was an initial project to build University of Glasgow in Minecraft form, which got to a certain stage, but uh, was not, not able to progress further. An undertaking for that would be significant. But I think that could be something that's interesting to explore uh, in the future. Obviously, the scale of the University of Glasgow being as it is, that would need a that would need more thinking. But uh, we 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 we'll see we'll, we'll see where that may where that may go. There are one or two organisations who've expressed an interest potentially in development of their sites in Minecraft, but those conversations are very much at an early stage. So we'll see where that goes. So watch this space then, I guess. Yeah. And I suppose another question, whilst we're still on Ellisland, would be. What was it like to work with the Minecraft Society? Were they members of the Games and Gaming Lab before, or has this kind of like pulled them in? This has very much pulled us into collaboration uh, with them, and it was it was great working with them. Both the enthusiasm for the work and also that the creativity and the responsiveness, and uh, Bailey also lives relatively near to. Ellisland Farm. So it, it, it turned out that this was a this was very much a, um, a, a really good point of connection that was made through this. And when we went to visit the the farm as part of the project and as part of uh, also as part of the photo shoot for the press launch, it was really interesting to see the reactions and also to also to see the differences. So although we had seen the material, uh, we had been focusing on the creation of this farm in the time of Robert Burns. And so suddenly we would walk up to a space where there should be a door and there now isn't one. It was a very surreal experience. And certainly from the from the test, those who did the testing, we've already had people who immediately having done the testing said, I want to go visit. So, you know, a real encouragement in, in that regard. But uh, yes, working with them has been great. We've also subsequently showcased Minecraft Ellisland, including at the university's advanced research center for the Arcadia Festival last autumn. In the autumn, we showcased it in virtual reality, which was an added dimension of uh, experiment with. And I think in the in the spring, we're going to be doing it more on computer terminals. So it's going to be a combination of these different elements. That sounds fantastic. And I think with the VR element as well, it kind of sounds like the sky's the limit almost for for this project and for other ones that you've potentially got on the horizon as well. Would that be fair to say? Yes. The VR experience was an interesting one. I think that there are certain elements there that we probably will need to think further about how best to incorporate. But it's certainly, I think, both virtual reality and augmented reality there are uh, projects that we are uh, involved in on on that front, and I know that the the university and the work that's been done by colleagues, uh, including Neil McDonald and others in that area, has been fantastic. The university is extremely well equipped for this, including, of course, with the XR suite. Has leading this project changed how you view Burns and how you view the farm at all? I think that for me, my experience of Robert Burns had always been through 
the the history itself and through uh, personally through uh, recitals of his work uh, through my singing which i do as an external activity i would uh, sing some of uh, burns's work and so i engage with it very much through that and i found that this this really did transport me into more into the world of of burns uh, in a different way from historical reenactments that i've seen and so I found a, a renewed appreciation for the work and also for the looking at it, even from dimensions that I would not have expected. Is we often we think of national, international treasures like Burns through the through the perspective of the writings, the work, the things that we remember. But walking around this virtual recreation of Robert Burns's farm, sometimes with games we initially think, well, they have to be focused on the fantastical. And yet this, and and indeed many other games increasingly, are also focused on the seemingly mundane, made fantastical. So everyday life, doing this, walking these steps, thinking about, well, practically, what was life like for him on Ellisland Farm? What would it be like to sit at this desk and write and to look out on this view? What would it be like to walk uh, by this river and to to see this landscape before you? What is it like to to, to move through these fields? And uh, one of the other things that was very important to us as part of the project was there was the farm itself, but also the surrounding landscape. And the landscape is actually constructed as part of a recreation of the terrain as far as we can get it. So it is fully mapped to the terrain with some slight um, modifications of the terrain at the edges in order to um, create natural barriers so folks don't leave. That was something else that I think really, really helped in that. It was the, it was this creation, not just of the literary, but also visualizing of the world of, of Burns at this particular significantly formative time in his life, being able to walk through that and to experience it, I found did give me a new appreciation for the works and to to read them and to hear them in that. What we'll do now is we're going to shift gear a little and we're going to have a look at Project Tempest. Well, I think my assessment of it is it's very it's very different to mine Minecraft. Mm. And I know I've been fascinated when I've seen little snippets of it appear on social media. So do you want to tell us a bit about what Project Tempest is and what it was that inspired its creation. Project Tempest emerged from an idea I had in 2021 when thinking ahead to COP26, thinking about the future environmental impacts. And I know that there had been uh, flooding in the past. My grandmother was flooded out of her home twice, uh, going back to the uh, 1950s. I mean, the great flood of that hit the um, uh, east coast of England uh, was something that led to her being having to leave her home. So it's always something that has been close to my heart uh, in terms of exploring the the history of that and mitigation uh, methods. And I just thought, well, could you simulate the flooding of Glasgow in the future? And the connected question was, could you then game it? Could you use it as a tool in order to allow students and potentially policymakers to explore this question in in different ways uh, alongside other simulation methods. And so that led to me being principal investigator on Project Tempest, 
And I ran this in parallel with another project that I had funding for as PI at that point called Project Aware, Access to Wargaming in Education. And that project was very much focused around finding new ways of co-creating educational and research-led games, working with staff and students, creating these together. Those ranged from such topics as simulating historical revolutions and the politics behind them, one of the games being created focusing on the 1848 revolution, but not necessarily taking the same pathway depending on what happened through to the wargaming of housing policy. And so translating strategic uh, wargaming concepts into different areas. And so with Project Tempest, we had a team of students and staff working together, principally myself leading and working with them. This group of students, about five initially, and then others being added later, came from four different continents. So it was a very international team. It was really interesting to hear the different insights that were brought to the table. Those who were working on it, a lot of them were motivated because of potential flooding experiences in their own countries. And they wanted to take that knowledge back with them afterwards to potentially do more to raise awareness. So it, for all of us, I think it was very much, we had a, a passion in our interest for exploring this area. We showcased some of the work at the COP26 Green Zone. And there were thousands of people who were there and going past the different stalls. And the, certainly the reception seemed to be very positive and also intrigued as to quite where this might uh, lead. Uh, originally, we were planning to run the first iteration of the war game uh, around COP26, but um, partly there were delays in the, in the process, but we, we also thought that running a war game of virtually flooding the city of Glasgow when there were all those decision makers gathered together may not necessarily have been received all that well. Uh, so in the end, we we delayed and ran it in uh, 2022 and have run it uh, further since then and have kept building on and refining it. Most recently, I currently am principal investigator on a Natural Environment Research Council funded grant that is looking at ways of computerizing this uh, simulation, this gameplay more and finding new ways of exploring the uh, behavior of people and emergency services in these types of scenarios. I think you've shown me sort of mock-ups of news reports and social media posts that are part of the game. Yeah. And obviously you've just said that, you know, you're looking at potentially computerizing the game. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about what the gameplay sort of entails? This is obviously quite different to being mm. on Minecraft and in the simulated environment there. And I'm assuming that this is a collaborative game as well. So you've not got individual players each individually trying to flood Glasgow themselves or anything like that, have you? No, indeed. That would be a very different game. And I know that there, there are games out there which will enable you to create natural disasters or to, uh, whether in, in, in video game or board game form. But uh, no, the intention here is very much to try and mitigate the effects of a natural disaster. In a sense, it is collaborative, 
but there are also potentially competing pressures. The way that Tempest works is primarily as a tabletop or is a person-based game or crisis game simulation in which players take on the role of different agencies. And sometimes you might have one player playing a particular agency, like the police services or fire services, Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, for example, or multiple players playing the same agency and acting in concert. The game as it stands consists of two overarching stages and then divided into multiple phases. The first of which is prior to any flooding, making decisions over resource investment. And inevitably, given the nature of budgeting, there isn't enough to go around. So you have to make decisions on what you fund and what you don't. And that then lays the groundwork for the impact of the flood in the the second stage, which is crisis management over a series of turns. In that, you have a combination of maps showing the flooding of Glasgow, news reports that are fed to the players, sometimes social media posts, uh, all of which we have created that's been mocked up by uh, researchers in the lab. Lauren Watson, who's a researcher in the lab, done a lot of work on uh, creating those, which is much appreciated. And uh, you also have a GM or game master who is, in a sense, feeding information to the players and who is who is controlling the flow of the narrative and their decision-making process. To some degree, there are elements in there that are scripted, and there are also elements that are ad-libbed. And there will be messages coming into the players so that they do not know at any given point what is really happening or what is potentially a report that turns out later to be erroneous or turns out later not to be a major decision point. Trying to replicate the pressures of a real crisis in which you don't necessarily know at that stage what the most important decision points are. But we do have a few fixed decision points. We also have a system of branching pathways, which determines on the basis of what they funded and also on the decisions they make, how that mitigates or increases casualties and damage, for example. And that also includes some elements which are randomly generated or generated in response to particular inputs, so that no one playthrough will ever be the same as another. As part of this ecosystem of of information that we feed them, we do include some deliberate fake news. And this is partly to test the question of how people respond in these situations. Do they question the information they're receiving? Do they look carefully at the sources? Or do they not? And does that affect their decision-making? It's really a game that is both designed to have them experience this scenario, a future catastrophic flooding of Glasgow. Effectively, we we assume a worst case scenario of a storm surge and also groundwater flooding in, in in the future. So it's looking at that particular scenario, but it's also more broadly getting them to reflect on how they look at news and media that is coming to them, how they assimilate that in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation of that nature. I'm speaking as a gamer here, Tim, but that all sounds absolutely amazing to me. 
I love that you're challenging players with the fake news and the misinformation, but also the idea that no scenario is going to be the same depending on their responses. And that I think that sounds brilliant. And for you as PI, you've always had different groups of people play through this a few times, I imagine. Were there any responses that particularly surprised you? Hmm. Or were there any that you kind of anticipated and people have kind of followed the similar paths? Or has there been anyone that's kind of gone completely off-road and turned things on the head? (laughs) That's a good question. We certainly have had a variety of responses. And I think what's what's really been interesting has been the patterns and the dynamics involved. And the, I think one thing, particularly in the early playthroughs, that we had assumed would be more the case was a heightened degree of potential interagency competition, given the limitations in resources, such as in the resource allocation phase. But in actual fact, we found that players going into this, certainly in those stages, were very much concentrated on looking at it and thinking, okay, this is what we have. And then and then going around each person and calmly, rationally working out, well, this is how much we can give to this and that. So even from the start, we found that those groups were particularly cooperative with one another. So there was not the same degree of friction that we'd anticipated there might have been. I think to some extent that that may change in subsequent designs or iterations. The fact that they knew what was coming, I think also does have an impact. Uh, one very variation of the game, which we have not yet implemented, but we are considering for the future, is running a game with them, but not actually telling them what the disaster is going to be so that they don't then know what they're going to be facing. And they have to try and decide which is the real disaster. It's a bit difficult to do that with Playtests of Tempest because the clue is in the name to some degree. But yeah, that's something we'd like to explore. Something else I personally would like to explore more is what the effect is of the room. Because it's it's something that's often overlooked, but I've found this increasingly to be the case, that the very the very layout of rooms themselves has an impact on how people play. And in our earliest playtest, we did it in a room in the Malema building, which is actually is a fantastic room for doing this in because it is almost like a command center. It has a central sort of circular table. There's no real windows in there. It has the sort of the door that is sort of metallic. It has screens on the walls. It has even a sort of circular rimmed light above your head. It, it is literally feels like you are in the depths of a some kind of uh, control or crisis management center. And I felt that really added to the sense of what, what we were doing in the dim lighting. Whereas you run this in a classroom that has sort of the, you know, big windows, the sun is shining. It's, it's not to say that people don't get immersed in it because we have had people immersed in it, but it certainly changes the dynamic. What were the players' responses after the playtest? What we generally found was that folks really appreciated the game and that they felt that they had learned from it. We also got a lot of really good feedback on ways of improving the game and things that we might want to change. It's going back to the the, the Master Yoda, take another quote, um, you must unlearn what you have learned. That is very much a thing with something like Tempest and with these other types of games is that they are, they're never static. You are always getting feedback on things that you can refine and change and modify. 
and I think that that is that is something that more generally in games in the past has been something of a challenge where what you're looking for with a game is oh you know there's the finished product you know we want this to be complete uh, and yet by its by, by their nature these types of games you're always learning and you're always refining although we ourselves are learning from the game we're also learning how better to do the game uh, and so I, I think that that those discussions that we have after the game sometimes they can be as valuable if not more valuable than the game itself it's getting people talking about their experiences of it and what they felt worked or what they what they challenged what they thought maybe maybe they thought critically about or they made connections so i find that having those types of after action discussion are really important and really valuable for us are there any plans to work on similar genres of games with other environmental events and disasters or perhaps periods of history is there any that you want to do or there any that you can maybe tease for a little bit well um, one project that i'm leading at the moment is looking at the impact of solar storms on earth uh, in the future but also drawing on history uh, historical events specifically the carrington event which was the largest recorded impact of a, a in terms of a solar storm uh, on earth in the 19th century at a point where the principal impact was on some electric telegraph stations and on creating aurorae that reached much further south than they otherwise would have done it, it was at a stage where we didn't yet have the technology in place that could have been significantly disrupted uh, by this but we now live in an era where there is so much digital technology and so much that is reliant on things like satellite infrastructure and earth-based digital communications even in the recording of this this podcast right now is 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 testament to that and knowing what may be the impact of that of, of a modern day carrington event uh, as well as how decision makers could respond to a crisis is something that i find really interesting and it links both my my space research uh, into space and space flight security and space environmental hazards into my gaming research and so that's something that i'm working with a colleague in um, astrophysics on and also with external organizations including the met office and others my hope at the moment is that we would be able to run something on that in 2024 because that's what we're moving towards quite what shape that will take whether it's something that resembles tempest or is a bit different uh, i don't yet know but yeah that's that's one example of projects that um, currently working on in this field so watch out for 2024 then i suppose is the message behind that and <laughs> I love the sound of that and especially like thinking about the digital impact of an event like that I feel like it'd be really interesting to watch players trying to grapple with that. Yes and it's uh, it's also something that I find with with both this game and with Tempest is the the power of history both to both history that we have perhaps not explored to the same extent and also how we incorporate history into these these games. I mean obviously with with Carrington we don't have history necessarily that directly lines up with what we want to do but we do have other kinds of history of for example 
power outages and electronic failures or other types of scenario that have happened historically and asking the question, well, what if we get a, a replication of that, for example? There was, uh, just to give you an example, there was during the Cold War a high altitude nuclear weapons test called Starfish Prime, which ended up creating an artificial radiation belt that temporarily disabled, uh, or in some cases permanently disabled, a number of satellites in Earth orbit. And this was one of the uh, one of the factors that led folks to realize that high altitude nuclear weapons tests is very much not a good idea because of these these types of consequences. So we see there an example of sort of radiation in space having an adverse impact on infrastructure, uh, including actually the first uh, British satellite called Prospero that was launched by an American rocket. So so in, in some cases, we don't need to look far in order to draw on potential exemplars of, of impacts and on uh, people's responses to them. Similarly, with Tempest, some of the material that we incorporate into the game is, is a future forecasting. Even that is derived from material that we have from the past, such as, for example, in 1994, during floods in Glasgow, when the Glasgow Central Low Level unexpectedly floods. And we're very fortunate at that time there was no oncoming train, because if not, that could have been very problematic. Yeah, so that's so to me, the history is both powerful in how it informs our creation of these games, and also what from these games we can then learn about contingent factors in that history and how things played out in that sense. If our listeners, in particular students and other staff at the university, want to get involved in, in Project Tempest, in other games that you've got on the horizon, which I'm sure many people are going to particularly want to playtest, I feel like you'll have some volunteers for that um, after this. How can they get involved? The um, easiest way to get involved would be to get in contact. We always love to hear from people in the university from whatever whatever subject area, whether staff or students, staff are academic or professional services. We, we, we welcome everybody in terms of inquiries. And the best way to contact would either be at our email address of gaming-lab at glasgow.ac.uk or alternatively, you can get more information on our website through Arts Lab. We have a Twitter account as well, where we publish our most up-to-date material, which is at U of G Games Lab. I personally know the answer to this, but I feel that I'd be remiss if I didn't include this in the recording. But what about undergraduate students? This isn't just something that's isolated to PhDs or early career researchers, is it? Oh, no. We have members of the lab who are undergraduate postgraduate taught uh, master students, postgraduate research students, uh, uh, staff from both academic and professional services. We also have alumni members as well who remain on our email list and membership of the lab. Uh, the main commitment is occasionally receiving emails from us and folks can then choose to engage as much or as little as they want to. We also welcome inquiries where even people potentially want to float ideas to us and we're happy to have conversations and do a bit of blue skies thinking or even more practically grounded thinking in that whether it is something that is very small in terms of you'd like to do 
something around engagement involving a game, but you don't know exactly where that might go, right the way up to and including supporting large grant bids to UKRI or elsewhere. We cover all of that. And even if we can't directly help or don't have the capacity to, then we could still potentially have conversations with you about those ideas and how you might want to take them forward. Or indeed, we can connect you to people within the lab or beyond who may be able to help. As being co-director of the Games and Gaming Lab and working on all these amazing, fantastic different games changed your relationship with games? I think that in some ways it's actually enabled me to rediscover the the joys and sort of the the wonder of games that I originally had in my in my childhood which uh, which was actually one of the motivating factors that got me into studying history uh, because I, my my early encounters with history were both through video gaming and through exploring heritage sites and that was something that really inspired me and motivated me to then go and learn well what is this history that I have been playing through and obviously Games do not perfectly replicate history, and there are obviously all the contingencies in that. Um, but those were a real source of motivation and inspiration for me. And now I feel that the that has come full circle, where my my work as a historian connects me to gaming, and to in addition to connecting me to then through gaming to all these other different subjects. And uh, indeed, one of my master's courses is games and gaming history, which is all about looking critically at how history is used in games and how we might better use it in games or build historically informed games, whether looking at how you represent history and sort of authenticity versus accuracy, the mechanics, the morality and ethics, the gaming environment, all these different aspects, uh, which I feel are maybe not concentrated on to the same extent in the maybe more practical uh, but nonetheless valuable uh, courses on game design in different contexts and I think uh, admittedly one one consequence of the gaming projects in the last few years especially during the pandemic has been it's been a lot busier I've not necessarily been able to have as much time to enjoy games or indeed other pursuits to the same extent at its height, I had 35 people working with me as part-time research assistants, interns, and software developers on a series of short-term interlocking projects. And that is something that prior to the gaming lab was not the case. I mean, I was I was a personal researcher. I was doing these things. So in one sense, it has completely changed the way in which I approach research. I still have my personal research. I still work as an individual researcher, but I also now have this entire world of engaging with and supporting projects, either projects that I lead or projects that are led by others across the university whom I'm helping to support and incubate. And I, I feel it, is, it, it, it really has enriched my, my experience of both of engagement with games and also engagement with research. And the, the main thing now in the months ahead is just to, um, to to try and maybe carve out a little bit more time to actually uh, uh, <laughs> uh, appreciate that. Final question. If our listeners want to keep up to date with the things that 
you're personally doing in terms of your research with games, with history? How can they best do that? The best place to probably keep up with that would be my Twitter profile at Dr. Tim Peacock. That is where you'll be seeing the most uh, up-to-date tweets and retweets about uh, pretty much everything from gaming related to space and nuclear history and uh, increasingly AI as well. Um, there's a whole side of AI and gaming, which I, I work on, which we will sort of, you know, uh, keep for keep for the future, see where that see where that goes. But no, I was I was I was talking with uh, chat GPT last autumn, as you do when it was being tested. And therein lies both a, a set of very interesting possibilities, but also a minefield of challenges, which I think we are all going to have to navigate. And uh, in some ways, the the history of AI in gaming, and that is one potential one potential avenue for exploring some of those uh, some of those challenges, which we hope to be maybe doing more with in the future. I really want to ask you about that now, but I feel that this is perhaps a really good cliffhanger to leave things on, and then we can have you back for a future episode. If, if, if folks are interested in anything that I have discussed here or anything on my profile that I have not discussed, then feel free to drop me an email at uh, timothy.peacock at glasgow.ac.uk. I may not be in a position to be able to uh, to take you up on engagement in any given project, but as as with the gaming lab more widely, I am always happy to engage in conversation about ideas. And I, I absolutely love love that wherever those conversations may lead, because it's conversations like that that lead to Minecraft Ellerslands and Project Tempests and things that we otherwise would not have imagined. Thanks again to Tim for joining me on the podcast. If you are interested in getting involved in the Games and Gaming Lab, we will make sure that there are links in the show notes to both their Twitter account and also information on how you can sign up to their email newsletter. That's it for us today. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts, as well as find out about new episodes of the podcast by following us on social media at U of G Arts or by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Sia Jackson. Music is Notion by Coma Media. See you next time.